Well, good morning again. Glad you're here. Welcome on Facebook. Hey, we're, in the, we're going to do the campaign of Armageddon, part one and part two. Now, the, we're going to do it a little bit differently. The verses that I have are 19, uh, chapter 19, 11 through 16. I will not be expositing those, those, that section of Scripture. We will exposit that when we get to it. But the campaign of Armageddon is eight phases, and you have to see it from different Scriptures in order to put the whole thing together. So this will be more of a topical, and I'll finish this next week. So there's part one and then part two. So if you would, stand with me and read Revelation 19, 11 through 16, the campaign of Armageddon, part one. Now this is, this is Jesus' return. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And this is Jesus coming as the king on a white horse. He who sat on it was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns, many diadems, king's crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself, and he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And, and the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp, two, a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fiercest and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the word of God. Father, we thank you that this is a picture of the Lord Jesus coming back and taking these kingdoms of the world that have been in Satan's hands since the fall, and he is rescuing us from Satan's grasp, so to speak. He's taking his kingdoms back, and he will deal with the earth dwellers. He'll deal with all rebellers against him. And Lord, I pray today that everyone in this place, or everybody hears these words, truly know you as their Savior have believed and received the gift of salvation so they too can live with you forever because you are coming back as a judge to judge this earth and to reign as king of kings. Thank you for this time to study your word, the inerrant, infallible word of the living God. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Now, as you know, the theme of Revelation is, everybody should have this memorized, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming in judgment, and Jesus is coming to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, we talked about the sixth bowl judgment last week, and that's the start of this whole campaign of Armageddon. Bowl six and seven have to do with Armageddon, getting the armies there. And the sixth bowl, the Euphrates, was dried up. Why was it dried up? To facilitate the kings from the east coming and joining the battle. Now, many people believe this is the 200 million man Chinese army that's going to be joining this. Their whole purpose in, in, in gathering at Megiddo is to follow the Antichrist in killing any remaining Jews that he can come in contact with. Remember, the Jews have to plead for Jesus to return and to admit their national sin of rejecting Messiah. I'll mention that a couple times in this teaching. We know that bowl seven, we hear this loud voice from heaven. And the loud voice from heaven came out of the temple, the nails, the holy of holies. And remember in chapter 16 that only God was in the holy of holies. Only God was in his temple. And everybody else was displaced. It was kind of like God is, is kind of lamenting having to pour out these bold judgments. It's the final thing that was going to happen to the earth dwellers. And there's kind of a sadness there that God is going to permanently deal with these people who absolutely refuse to turn and live. 
It's the final wrath. And in that, he, we hear this cry, it is done. It is done. And you wonder what is done. The final wrath is going to be poured out. It'll be mission accomplished by our Lord Jesus Christ. And it was accompanied by the things that God likes to do. There were noises and thunderings and lightnings. It's a terrifying sound that is happening here. This is God's omnipotence on display. His power, his almighty power. We kind of get a, a glimpse of that in Exodus chapter 19, verse 16, when on the mountain of Mount Sinai, God is going to be giving the, the law to the people. And the people are, have this tendency to want to rush before God, and God puts a block there and says, don't come up here because I am holy and you will die. And from the mountain they hear this in Exodus chapter 19, verse 16. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled, shaking in their boots. Look, at, there's no such thing as us coming before the presence of God with any kind of hubris, any type of arrogance, and go, hey, I just talked to Jesus. Hey, I just talked to this, and he just came, and I just saw him, in it, and he was speaking to I, I, If that happens, you're going to be on your face and panic. We are not equipped for that right now. When you get your new body, and your new brain, by the way, we're going to be able to think right, uh, then we'll be able to see him as he is. But right now, we're not in shape for that. We're not in shape for that. And, and Revelation eleven fifteen is finally coming to full fruition. When, when we hear this, this voice saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever. Jesus is coming back to take the kingdoms of this world out of Satan's hands. And what we have seen with the bold judgments is global disasters that are amazing. A huge earthquake and then hail that just pounds the earth. 75 to 100 pounds each. Carpet bombing planet earth. Now I have a picture here of little hail. Little hail. Now, you don't like this when this happens to your car, do you? Or, you know, it just, it, it's damaging. It's a hassle. It takes you a long time to get in and get it fixed and that sort of thing. But these are little teeny hail balls. And most of the time, we just have little sleet-type hail. On the next photo, we have this. Now, this is Guadalajara, Mexico, in July 2019. The temperature is 88 degrees. This is not snow. This is hail. A massive hailstorm that hit there. But this is nothing, nothing. I couldn't find a picture of carpet bombing planet Earth, so you get these little, little, little tidbits. Next, I wanted to show you this. I want to examine the bold judgments in relation to Armageddon to kind of give you a setting as to where we are. So here are the bold judgments. Remember the sores, these awful boils that they have all the way through these bold judgments. And I want to suggest something to you. I believe these bold judgments are at the very end of the tribulation. Maybe weeks, months or so. But I think that Antichrist has had his way from the middle of the tribulation all the way to the end. All the way to the end. And now God is exerting his wrath upon earth. And it starts with these awful boils that they're going to have until they're taken out of here. And then the sea turns to blood, and the river turns to blood, and then there's a burning sun, and it's painful, and it's dark. And in, ver in bowl 6 and bowl 7, we see the Euphrates is dried up, and then Babylon is destroyed. This 
all has to do with Christ's return, all has to do with the campaign or the war of Armageddon. And we will get into, some people are asking me why we're not doing chapter 17 this week, is because Armageddon was introduced in chapter 16, and there isn't a full description of it that goes in order, so we have to kind of do a topical on it this week. So I know it's different, it's strange, but I think it'll be interesting. So, the earth inhabitants have been decimated by the bowl judgments. You have to look at planet earth. It, has, it, is, it is being destroyed by the wrath of God with all of these awful things that have come upon it. Matthew 24, 22 almost leaps off the page for us when Jesus says, unless those days we were shortened, no flesh, no flesh, no humanity would be saved alive but for the elect's sake, those days were shortened. Now, who are the elect? In context, when you're doing a study in the book of Matthew, it comes from Matthew, chapters 24 and 25 are specifically dealing with the nation of Israel. A lot of times pastors will, will, will uh, appropriate this to, or, or, or connect this with the church. And you can do some of the things with the church, but it, it, the vast majority of this the primary focus is the nation of Israel, not the church. Not the church. So the elect in this context are the Jews. So if Messiah did not intervene, all of these judgments and Antichrist vehement hatred of the Jewish people would eliminate every Jew or every human that was left on earth. Interesting thought. So the participants are in place. Antichrist has established his plan, and this week we're going to see the campaign of Armageddon. And this, recall that Armageddon is a campaign, not a single battle. There are several phases to the campaign. Now Reagan's going to put up here next, Arnold Fruchtenbaum has a picture of this in his footsteps of Messiah. Ron Rhodes also comments on this. And John Wolvert also comments on this. That's where I got most of this information for this teaching. Also from Tony Garland, also from Andy Wood. So those five sources are the main ones that I got this information from. But I want you to notice this. The campaign of Armageddon has eight phases. Eight phases. And the first one is assembling the armies of Antichrist in Megiddo. In preparation, now watch, the next thing that he will do is he will go down to do. Babylon will be destroyed and he'll go down to Jerusalem. And we'll go through these eight phases in this study. But I want you to look at this and realize again that there's eight phases to this. And it's going to be interesting. Why was Babylon destroyed? Antichrist capital. And who in the world would destroy it? We'll get to that in just a second. So, with that stated, where have we been with the judgments? Remember, it started with the seal judgments, then it went to the trumpet judgments, then it went to the bowl judgments. But who is unraveling the seals? Who had the scroll? Remember in Revelation 5, Jesus was, has a scroll. He was the one that took the scroll out of Father's right hand. Only he is qualified to open the scroll and to take back planet Earth. He is the one. The seal judgments, we saw this massive amount of bloodshed, famine, death, economic upheaval, and a fourth of the planet dies. And that's not the great tribulation yet. 
The Great Tribulation is the last three and a half years where every human would die if Jesus did not intervene. Again, this is a, the sealed judgments are horrific and awful, but they aren't the worst. The trumpet judgments are worse than that, and the bold judgments crescendo the whole thing. The condition of the world prior to Jesus' return is one giant mess. One giant mess. The world is decimated by God, and the last decimation is the bold judgments. The world is also being decimated by Antichrist. You don't think he's going to use every weapon in his arsenal to maintain control? And I would venture to say there's probably even nuclear weapons that are used. Many people will die. If Jesus did not intervene again, no flesh would be saved alive. It will be Jesus to the rescue, and he will come in eight phases. Now, let me say this again. God is orchestrating this. The Antichrist thinks he's doing something. He is just a pawn being moved wherever God wants him to be moved. The rescue plan has eight phases, starting with number one, his allies, Antichrist allies, assemble for war. And that was our verse last time in chapter 16, verse 14. Now, if you remember, these demons are released. And these demons are going to get, round up all these nations. And they're going to do miracles in, to coerce them to come to Megiddo and join Antichrist in his attempt to, th to kill every Jew on the planet. Picking it up in verse 14, for they, they are spirits of demons performing signs, simian miracles, which go out to the kings of the earth of the whole world to gather them to the battle, the polemos. The war, not a single battle, but a war of the great day of God Almighty. Verse 16, and these demons gather them where? To a place in Hebrew called Armageddon. Armageddon, the hill of Megiddo. This is the gathering place. And again, the demonic spirits will gather the combatants from all over the world. And they gather them together to Armageddon. The kings of the east are going to have be huge participants in this. What is the goal of the coalition forces? What is the goal? And again, I've already told you, to destroy the Jewish people. Anti-Semitism will crescendo from the middle of the tribulation to the end of the tribulation. Remember Antichrist's posture with the Jewish people for the first half of the tribulation. He's a friend. He allows them to build their temple. They start to think he's a good guy. They start to buy in that he's the Messiah. That he's the Messiah. And then he does something despicable, which we'll talk about in just a second. So Satan will see to it that his armies are assembled, but again, it is allowed by God. And I want to suggest something to you. There's demons involved in this whole thing. These demonic spirits are involved in getting these armies to Megiddo. Notice how the Bible is proven so true. Over and over, when you think about war, when you think about human conflict, think about this. It's not the people, it's the spirit behind the people. There's demonic spirits. In any human conflict, there's a lesson here to be learned. In any human conflict, there are spiritual forces behind the scenes fighting against you. Now, what are they doing? Can they make you do something? No, but they're influencing people. They're influencing people. They stir up the pot, don't they? 
they inflame the situation. And our job as believers is to know his methods, to not fall for his schemes. Remember in, in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, your protection is the body armor supplied by God. And we must be aware of his schemes. That word was methodia, the way that he acts with people. And I want you to realize that these kingdoms that are being brought in, they have no defense against these demons. They don't have the Spirit of God. They are fodder for being maneuvered by any way that those demonic forces want. Much so today. But you are different. You are an equipped soldier. You are a formidable resistance operator. And like recon, right now, you're behind the lines. This world is not my home. I'm only passing through. We are like recon behind the lines, fighting a guerrilla war against this enemy. That is what's going on. Now, your job as a soldier. Now, please, if you don't get anything out of this talk, get this. Number one, occupy. You hold your ground where you are at. You occupy where you are, representing the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't cave to what the culture is telling you about him. You don't cave to, to, to other world religions. You realize that you're on the right team. You occupy. And you, you represent a worldview that, world that represents the Lord. Secondly, you resist. Resist the devil and he will flee. Come near to God and he will come near to you. And thirdly, you are called to fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. The good fight is this. Fight the good fight to finish the race, to keep the faith. That's what the good fight is. To finish strong and to keep the faith. Now, if there's a good fight, what does that intimate? There must be a bad fight. <laughs> so the bad fight, as you know, is going to be the flesh fights. The me, myself, and I. And whenever you start to feel this, I deserve. I ought to have. I'm, I'm, I'm the one that's getting messed up in this. Then you are not fighting the good fight. The good fight only comes by you being filled with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, dwelling in Christ, representing your God well. That's the good fight. The good fight is the God fight. Fighting for your King. Fighting for Him and His principles. And it's a constant fight against the secular worldview that is coming on us more and more, and more. What you're being bombarded with through the media, and government, and education, in your workplace, more, and more, and more. A secular worldview. You are a voice, believe it or not, you are a voice of sanity in an insane world. You are. Remember that. Phase one, the, the armies are gathered. Phase two, Commercial Babylon is destroyed, and I was having a hard time with this. What in the world is going on? Who is going to destroy Commercial Babylon? Well, I, there, there's many verses that have to do with this. Again, chapter 17 talks about religious Babylon. Chapter 18 talks about commercial Babylon. We'll, get, we'll study those in depth in a few weeks. But right now, this one verse will tell us what we need to know. Verse 18, 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a millstone, threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down 
and shall not be found any more. That's the destruction of Babylon. Now again, why is Babylon destroyed by the earth dwellers? And who, great question, who would dare attack Antichrist Babylon? It doesn't tell us specifically, but I think we can deduce by what is going on on earth at that time a plausible reason for why this attack is going on. The world is a mess. Antichrist has left Babylon to go to Megiddo to stage these armies. So he's taken his forces from Babylon and he's staging his armies in Megiddo. So he's absent there. And his protection is absent there. And Babylon is his power center. Okay? Just keep that in mind. Now think about this. Antichrist could do nothing about the wrath of God that is being poured out with these bold judgments. Remember, there's maybe two and a half, three years that's gone by that everything's been going Antichrist way. Thinking he's in charge and that sort of thing. And now the earth dwellers are realizing something is awry. The Antichrist could not protect the earth dwellers loyal to him. Remember, Antichrist, one of his characteristics is he's a bloviator. You know what that is? A talker. A talker. He has these pompous words. He could not protect the earth dwellers that were loyal to him. Could it be, could it be that his followers then become adversaries and jump on the chance to inflict harm? Remember, they have boils from head to toe. They have no water. Their whole world, they're being roasted by the sun. They are in one big mess. And Antichrist can't do anything about it. Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 9 and 41 for 42 gives us more insight into this. And there's many verses on this. This is one that I think describes it well. Verse 9, For behold, I, this is God speaking, will raise and cause to come against Babylon an assembly, a group, of great nations from the north. Now notice where they come from. It's north, now hold that in your mind. And it's nations, it's plural. There's a reason I'm emphasizing this. In just a second, you'll know. So, what is happening? This group of people, they are rebelling against their failed leader. That's what it appears to me. Who promised them the world. Now, Antichrist promises you nirvana, and it's just like Satan. He's always promised you blue skies and, and great days and that sort of thing, and it ends up being one big storm in your life. Satan will always promise you more than what he can deliver. And verse 41 and 42 gives us a little more insight. Behold, a people will come from the north, a great nation. Many kings shall be raised up from the ends of the north. They shall hold the bow and the lance. They are cruel and shall not show mercy. Their voice shall roar like the sea. They shall ride on horses, set in array like a man for battle against you, O daughter of Babylon. That's Antichrist's kingdom. These people are attacking Antichrist's kingdom. Are they crazy? Are they crazy? Maybe. Now, some people believe this is totally different than, than what I'm saying. Some people believe this refers to ancient Babylon's destruction by the Persians. Remember the, remember the statue. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, legs in a ten-nation confederation were the toes. That was what's going to happen in the future. That's what Daniel saw in our Daniel teaching. Now, most of you are familiar with hopefully familiar with that. So, 
Many, many think, again, this is ancient Persia defeating Babylon. I don't believe that. It says these nations come from the north. Watch the map. Watch the map. Here is Iraq. Babylon is in Iraq. Iran is to the, or Persia is to the east, not the north. That's not, that, this very well tells us that this is not Daniel's Babylon. So that's one thing. But it goes more than that. The Persian king Cyrus did not lay waste to the land. He didn't completely destroy the thing. As a matter of fact, there was no destruction. And, and Babylon actually became a Persian ruling center. And these many kings, again, comes from the north. It's not a single king. So it's the Babylon of the end times. It cannot be Daniel's Babylon. Now, why would Antichrist leave his power center unguarded? I think that's a reasonable question, don't you? Why would it be unguarded? Why would it leave Babylon unguarded? Well, again, his world is crumbling fast. You don't think he knows what's going on with these bold judgments? That he can't do a thing about it? He knows he has one last chance to survive. The, the Satan-possessed Antichrist has a single purpose, a single goal, and that's to eradicate the Jewish people to thwart Messiah's return. Remember, he's insane. Sin makes you insane. What's he want to do? He wants to save his skin. This is all about self-preservation. This is his only hope. And remember, think with me, just as God used the Babylonians in the Old Testament as a, as a demonstration or as a rod of his wrath, he is now using these nations as a rod of his wrath against the Antichrist. Against the Antichrist. Antichrist will be at Megiddo preparing for his last stand. He's concerned about his survival. He will be told that Babylon's, about Babylon's destruction by messengers, and Antichrist will then do, when he hears that his city has been destroyed, he will do what tyrants do, and he will go on a rampage. He will pitch a fit, and he will turn all of his hatred on the Jews, and then he will head to Jerusalem. That kill the Jews. And that'll be the fall of Jerusalem in phase three. It'll be ravaged. And it's Zechariah 14.2. Listen to what the prophet says. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken. The houses plundered. The women raped. Half the city will go into exile. They'll run for their lives. But the rest of those people shall be cut off from the city. They'll be killed. The capture of Jerusalem will not be easy. Antichrist army, which is huge, is going to have a difficult time against that little city. The Jews will have a stout defense of their city. Zechariah 12.3 says this, stated that the, nation, that the nations that fought against the Jews in Jerusalem will be sorely wounded. Micah 4.11 and 5.1 talks about this battle that the Jews eventually losing, but causing great casualties in Antichrist army. Antichrist will suffer heavy losses. He'll eventually win, and then he'll ravage the city. But eventually, Messiah comes to Jerusalem and rescues the city. Phase four, Antichrist moves south against the remnant. Now, I think you know what is going on here. Revelation chapter 12 Remember, just after Satan is booted out of heaven, and I believe he inhabits uh, 
the Antichrist. He, he possesses the Antichrist. And in verse 12, one of the things that he wants to do, again, is kill the Jewish people. So watch what he does. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, thrown out of heaven, and his hubris, he creates war in heaven. And Michael and his archangels prevail. He's kicked out of heaven. Heaven rejoices. Heaven is hip, hip, hooray. But woe to the earth. <laughs> woe to the earth and its inhabitants. And the first thing he does, he persecutes the woman. And we've spent a lot of time uh, proving that the woman is Israel, who gave birth to the male child, Messiah. But the woman had two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness. She knows where to go. She knows to go to Basra or Petra to escape, where she's nourished for the three and a half years. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood from the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. This is an army. The flood is an army. We talked about those words too and showed it was an army. But the earth helped the woman. So this earthquake happens and gobbles up Antichrist pursuing army. So now Antichrist is really ticked off. He can't get to this remnant that is in Basra. So what does he do in verse 17? He turns on the offspring who keep the commandments of God. Those are the Jews loyal to Yahweh who have not taken the mark. Who are commandment of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Those, are, I think, are the tribulation saints or the tribulation believers. So, what we see here, the armies of Antichrist will move southward from Jerusalem to Basra. Again, the picture, Arnold's picture, and that's phase four right here. The armies of Antichrist will go to Basra. What does he want to do in Basra? He wants to kill the remnant that fled from Jerusalem when they saw the abomination of desolation being set up. He wants to kill every Jew so they can't plead for Messiah to come back. He has a strategy that is well planned and well worked out, but foolhardy. He cannot defeat the living God. So why are they there? They saw the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Remember, Jesus mentioned this in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15 through 21. And he said that if you're on the housetops, don't go down. If you're in the field, don't go back to the field. If Whatever happens, pray that your flight's not in the winter on the Sabbath. When you see this abomination of desolation, as spoken by the prophet Daniel, you run for your life. You go back for nothing. You flee and you run, and they know that. And they know that. The armies of Antichrist are poised to destroy the Jewish remnant. The remnant's doom appears imminent. This is a massive army that's coming. From a human perspective, they are defenseless. But it's at this point, and some people believe this is at the very last days of the tribulation. And I'm going to show you in Hosea that I think it's the last two or three days before the end of the tribulation that Messiah will come they will cry out for Messiah to come and save them. In phase five, we'll see the national regeneration of Israel. Now I'm going to ask you to do something here. Turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. This is a verse that it's very important that you understand. Romans 11, 25 through 27. Now, Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 Paul is dealing with the nation of Israel. He talks about the nation being, being 
the, the, the church being grafted in. The people of Israel, have, the Jewish people have been set aside for a time. This is the mystery. For I do not desire brethren, talking to the Roman Christians and us today, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, this mysterion, this thing that wasn't revealed in the Old Testament, but what is revealed now. That is the mystery. Lest you be wise, lest you be arrogant in your own opinion. That blindness in part has happened to Israel. They are a blinded people group. They're the only people group on earth that God has purposely blinded. In part, there are a few Jews that are being saved, but there'll be a massive number that are saved at the very end. So blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now we've talked about the fullness of the Gentiles in the past. It's from Pentecost to the rapture of the church. It's all the Gentiles saved during that time frame. There's a final one that will be saved. Somebody that you might witness to and get saved, that could be our exit point. And then all of Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion, out of, out of, out of Jerusalem, Mount Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob or the nation of Israel, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That was the new covenant that we went through in Jeremiah 31, 31, where God will put it on all the remnants' hearts that they will turn and believe in him. Okay? Now keep this thought. This national regeneration of Israel is literally days before the second coming of Messiah. Now Hosea gives us some insight into this. Hosea chapter 5, verse 15. Now this is from Arnold Fruchtenbaum's Footsteps of Messiah. This is what he believes, and I think I agree with him. It says this, I will return again to my place. This is referring to Messiah. Remember in, in Matthew chapter 23, at the end of that chapter, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing See, your house has left you desolate. You will see me no more. And do you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They have to plead for Messiah to come back. Messiah is going away until they do that. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. That's this very end of the tribulation. It will take the entire seven years right to the, almost the very end for them to realize that Jesus is the Messiah and plead for him to return. Verse 6, come, let us return to the Lord. This is the repentant phase. For he has torn, they've gone through terrible punishment. He will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. The shepherd will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On a third day, he will raise us up. So Arnold believes that two to three days before the end of the tribulation is when these people will finally believe that Jesus is the Messiah and put their faith in him. And I want you to notice the posture of them once they believe. Zechariah chapter 12, verse three, verses 10 through 14, tells us how this nation will feel, the emotion that they will feel. Let me read to you. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace. This is when they're all getting saved. And supplication or sorrow. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. 
Who was pierced? Messiah was pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for his firstborn. This is, this is, this is grief. They are feeling the passion of what they have done all these years. And notice how the, how the repentance comes. From 11 through 14, it goes to individual homes. Verse 12 says this, And the land shall mourn every family by itself. Every one of these people individually will confess their sin of rejecting Messiah. They're not all coming in as a group. The group is going to believe, but they're all doing it individually, just like we have to do it. Zechariah 13, 7 through 9, tells us how many will be saved in the end. And it's one-third. Two-thirds will be cut off. Two-thirds will cut off. And again, it takes the whole seven-year time from the confessor national sin of rejecting Messiah and plead for him to return. In closing, the campaign of Armageddon, part one. When we read these verses, Zechariah chapter 12, 10 through 14, the emphasis is on this. Now hear this. Each house repenting individually. This is so important. Our relationship with God is restored individually, person by person, not groups, person by person. They must all place their trust in Messiah. This isn't saying a lot of people today, or some people today, believe that all Israel is saved means that every Jew that ever lived was saved. No, it's referring to the remnant that is saved when Jesus comes back and they turn and live. An individual must believe, remember what believe is, commit to, put your trust in, rely on Jesus Christ as your Savior, your sin bearer. It's individual. You have to believe to be saved. Now, no one is saved because you hang around with Christians. You're not saved for that. No one is saved because their mom and dad were Christians. And no one are saved because they go to church or they do a lot of religious stuff. You don't get saved that way. And no one is saved because they are born a Christian because you're born in America. You must be born again to be a Christian. It has to be supernatural. The only way to God is individual through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. No giant group is grandfathered in. Nobody doing their religious thing is grandfathered in. No one saying, I'm a great person. Look at all these things I do for Jesus. I do this. I do that. I do. That doesn't mean anything. What does Scripture say? All our righteousness is as filthy rags. There is none good, no, not one. There is none righteous in the eyes of a holy God. The only way we're righteous is through the blood of Jesus being applied to our lives. That's it. It's Jesus, not us. There's no way to God except through Jesus. Now, you've heard this verse, I don't know, maybe a hundred times in this church. Uh, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man, no one, no one comes unto the Father except by me. That's exclusive, isn't it? And that will get you in trouble today. Do not be fooled by the multiple roads to God that many espouse today. 
Remember the highway? The highway. Just pick your road. You choose your road because you're so important. You just choose your way. Jump on the highway. You want this way, you, this way. Hey, the next one will show you the multiple religion way. And we are hearing this more and more. And I can't tell you how sad this is. That Christians, Christians, supposed Christians, are buying into this, particularly progressive Christianity, which deny the infallibility of the Word of God. Okay? Believe that you can just get on the Buddha road. It'll get you to God. You can get on the New Age road. You get on any road that you want, and that is not true. And there are people that are supporting this. You'll recognize this person. Very popular today, very very kind lady, but very wrong. Very wrong. And many people are following popular people rather than following God. There is one way to God, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what Acts 4.12 says? Salvation is found in no other. <laughs> For there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. There's only one way to God. Is it because I'm saying it? Jesus said so. Okay? It doesn't mean a hoot if I say it. It means everything if Jesus says it. There's only one way to God because Jesus said so. Matthew states it perfectly in Matthew 7, 13 through 14. Remember this? Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many go in by it. And narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. And there are few who find it. It's a narrow way to God, but it's an open road to God. Everyone is welcome. Jesus kind of confirms the narrow way in John chapter 10, verse 9, when he says this, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go out and find pasture. What is Jesus talking about there? In context, it's the sheepfold. There is one, one entrance into the sheepfold. The shepherd watches over the entrance. The shepherd checks the sheep when they go through. He checks their ears for might. He checks their nose. He's watching over them. He gets them into the sheepfold and he stays there and protects them from the wolves. One way in, one way out, and it's through Jesus only. The tabernacle is another way that is described. Notice there's one entrance in the tabernacle. Now please, the tabernacle and the temple tell us how we are to approach a holy God. There is one way. Do you see multiple doors? Do you see multiple tabernacles? Do you see multiple ways? No, you do not. You see one way. The tabernacle is telling humanity how we are to appropriately approach God. So you enter by the gate. And the first thing you see is an altar of sacrifice, a brazen altar. Jesus died for us. We're cleansed from our sins, washed clean. In the holy place, another curtain, a holy place, is the table of showbread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. Then you have the menorah, the candlestick. I am the light of the world. Whoever comes to me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then the golden altar with the prayers of the saints. It's a sweet aroma to God. And here, which is not described very well, I wish I would have had a better picture than this, is that you have the veil. The veil is high. The veil is thick. And behind here, this is where Yahweh dwelt. In the Holy of Holies, you have the Ark of the Covenant. 
where once a year the priest could throw, put blood, jerk blood on the Ark of the Covenant and take the sins or cover the sins of the nation of Israel. Jesus' sacrifice takes our sins away permanently. It isn't a yearly sacrifice. It's one time. Now, this veil was torn down, giving humanity direct access to God. No longer are we blocked from God. We have direct access to God. There's one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way. Jesus said, I am the door. And the vast majority of all world religions don't believe this. But many Christians even deny that Jesus is the only way. That's where we are in Christendom today. A question for you is this. Will you believe the famous people? Will you believe the progressive Christians? Or will you believe what is written in the Word of God? That is a question. In our teaching today, the remnant has repented. The time has finally come for Jesus to return. And hear this. Jesus will defeat his enemies. He is Christus Victor. When he rose from the dead, he defeated Satan. He took our sins on the cross, took all of our wrath, made a way for us to be righteous before God. But oh, with the resurrection, he is a victor over sin and death. Jesus will rule his kingdom, as it says in 1916, with a rod of iron. There'll be a righteous, righteous government one day. And Jesus will have on his robe and on his thigh, you know, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So everyone knows who the real King of Kings is. And it's not Nebuchadnezzar. It's not Cyrus. It's not Alexander the Great. It's not any of the Caesars. It is not whoever is president, whoever is a dictator in a country. It is Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I would encourage you folks to process this information. This is really going to happen. This is laid out for us in Scripture so that we know what is going to happen, so that we can share with people what is going to happen, so they can come out of this, not have to go through this, and believe and be raptured out of here, and not have to go through this. One, our world is indeed ending as we know it. Now, for us, that's good news. But for the people of this world, the earth dwellers, they're biting their fingernails because temperature has gone up a half a degree. Oh, the ice caps are melting, and in 10 years, men remember, it started in the 90s. 10 years is going to be done. 2000, another 10 years is going to be done. 2010, another 10 years is going to be done. Well, they came out again, John Kerry. Nine years, he threw nine years out this time. I cannot, I, I cannot imagine a perfect world, and I bet you can't either, with a perfect ruler, a perfect environment, no pollution, no crime, no sickness, no disease, because Messiah will be there. But you know what else will be there? The earth dwellers, or not the earth dwellers, the believers that go into the, the millennial reign will all be believers, but they'll have children. And they will have free will to accept or reject Messiah. And do you know that Satan will be released at the end of the, end of the millennium? And he'll deceive the nations as the sand of the sea. That shows you the enormous depravity of humanity. So when people say, are we good people? You know what our DNA is in our fallen state. Depraved. The millennium will end. Eternity will be next on the agenda. That's going to be Revelation 21 and 22. That'll be interesting. And all things then will be made new. A new heaven, a new earth. The millennium will be 
redone. The earth will be redone to be inhabitable. We are here now. So while we are here, remember the three things you're supposed to do. Occupy. Occupy. Don't give ground. Keep your stance. Occupy. Resist. Resist what the world is doing. Resist to turn away from Christendom. Resist what modern Christianity was doing. Say, no, I will serve my Lord as he has described in this word of God. That is what I believe in. This is what truth is. Jesus said, thy word is truth. I can trust it. I can trust it. Occupy, resist, and folks, fight the good fight. Fight the good fight of faith. While we are here, you can expect strife. And in the midst of strife, Jesus has told us we can have his shalom. His shalom. John 16, Jesus, these things I have spoken to you. In me, you may, you may have peace. It is there for you. You have to appropriate it. In the world, you will have tribulation. Remember, Thalispus, crushing pressure. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And because Jesus has overcome the world, guess what? You can overcome the world if you dwell in him. If you walk in it with him, close to him. Be of good cheer. The word shalom is this. It does not mean this feeling of nirvana. Okay? It, it's trans, it can have that, but it's very much deeper than that. It means whole or complete. It means it is not just the absence of strife in my being. It doesn't mean just that. It, it means healing, wholeness, well-being, despite the presence of strife. You hear that? Despite the presence of strife. Shalom is available to you. It is available to you. Until next time, shalom, shalom. There's a song. Shalom, shalom, Jerusalem, peace be to you. Till Messiah comes to take us home, may his joy be found in you. You, are, you be the Jerusalem. May his joy be found in you. And then I have this picture, the picture of this tranquility. Occupy, resist, fight the good fight. Live your life with shalom, with healing and wholeness. In your spirit, you can have peace no matter the strife. Well-being. Jesus is your shalom source. Walk in it. It's available to us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this time that you've given us a study. The infallible, inerrant word of God. Lord, there are hills that we die on. And this is one hill. That this word is true. That you have spoken to your people what you want us to know while we traverse this earth. May we walk in the truth of your word. Lord, I ask that each person here will examine their hearts. We're getting ready to take communion. That you will speak to each one of our hearts things that we need to know. Any sins that, that we have committed, may we confess them before you. May we come before you as we take the Lord's table with pure, clean hearts. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the Lord's table that you've given us to remember what you have done for us. Your shed blood, your broken body, done for us. We forever say thank you 
Jesus. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.